Hello all, and welcome to another Mangum Talks podcast. This is Spencer, and for those of you that have already fallen in love with Lee over at our GOT Questions podcast, I do apologize, but I'll be your, I'll be your sole bit of continuity here today. Instead, I'm here with my good friends and fellow Mangamites, Josh. Say hi, Josh. Hello, people. And BJ. BJ. Hello there. <laughs> to introduce you to a new show on the Mangum Talks channel. For those of you who are so deprived as to be unfamiliar with our other material, Mangum Talks is a collection of old college friends from UNC Chapel Hill who all lived together for several years in the Mangum Residence Hall. And despite many years and many miles, we still like to find the time to argue vehemently over the most inane things humanly possible. On top of arguing, we also share a passion for reading, and so combining the two has felt only natural. But given that we live on what is now quite literally opposite sides of the country, I mean, Josh, you're still up around Chapel Hill. BJ, where in California are you again? West Coast, best coast, bitch. San Diego. <sighs> Shut up. And I am in what is technically a foreign country down in South Florida. It has gotten rather hard for us to find opportunities to mock each other in person. So we are here today to christen what I hope is the inaugural episode of the Mangum Reads podcast, name pending because nobody else had any better ideas, a digital book club in which we hope you all will take part. Each episode, one of us is going to propose a new short story, novella, or if we are particularly ambitious, novel for everyone to read for the next episode and discuss in detail once we get there. In between episodes, I would invite you all to read along with us, post your comments, questions, topics for discussion that you might find interesting, and as our audience grows, we hope you'll also make recommendations of stories that you find interesting and want to share. This week, BJ provided our initial recommendation, and my compliments, sir, you picked a good one. What can you tell us about it? Um, so this is a short story by probably one of my favorite authors of the moment, Brandon Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Um, he does incredible amounts of world building. Um, and honestly, actually, I was first introduced to his writing because after uh, Robert Jordan died and I was 11 books into a series that had more coming, uh, possibly kind of like Game of Thrones, but we'll see where that ends up. Oh, don't bring up that uh, possibility, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sanderson takes over. He'll finish up nice and quickly. So, yeah. so Sanderson within a year for uh, Robert Jordan, and along with help from uh, Robert Jordan's widow, and rapidly turned out massive tomes, finishing out the Wheel of Time, and did an impressively good job. And honestly, I think that his writing was better than Robert Jordan's uh, towards that the later part of that series. And so and, yeah. I, that, that's how I was first introduced to his work. And then I think I was talking to Josh on us about um, Mistborn. And mm, yep. so um, I sort of kept that in the back of my head. I went through uh, that trilogy. And then I got lucky. I saw in Humble Bundle that they had a huge package of Brandon Sanderson stuff. And this was one of the uh, short stories that was in there among a handful of others, which we uh, might get to in future episodes. So this one is called uh, Legion. Oh, yeah. And I feel feel it a somewhat disadvantage compared to you guys, because despite the fact you guys have been talking about Mistborn and how wonderful Sanderson is and that he's a friggin' machine and how quick he is in churning out quality material... This is the first Sanderson I've ever read. Well, you have a wide, wide world waiting for you, Spencer. I mean, we've been haranguing you for the past year or two to start reading his stuff, and maybe this will get you to do it. It 
just well might, because honestly, for short novellas that I've read recently, this was the most compelling. This read like the pilot episode of a great TV show, and I'm just fascinated to read more. That's a really good description of it, honestly, because Sanderson usually is much more long form, but it was really nice with like how tight he kept the storyline. And yeah, that's that's a really good description. BJ, you you recommended it. How about you introduce us a little bit to uh, who our main character, well, I'll call him the main character, but he's also the source of every other character in the book. So what can you tell us about Stephen Leeds? So, uh, Honestly, we don't know much about Stephen Stephen Leeds. So Stephen Leeds is is the the main perspective in many ways, and the main character. And you basically are introduced to him as an eccentric, probably millionaire, somebody very rich. Um, and his normal mo sort of seems to be that people come to him with problems, and he helps them solve them. And what I would say is a somewhat unique manner and well, a unique manner. So he lives in a fairly large mansion or manor (laughs) and with uh, mostly empty rooms, sort of, as we will uh, see with uh, some house staff basically is a butler and some other random people. And his butler Wilson sort of uh, introduces the, the supplicants to, to the main character, Stephen Leeds. Hmm. And as you get to know him, you find out that Stephen Leeds has uh, a little bit more to him. So he <laughs> yeah. kind of described himself as a very normal person with uh, extraordinary people inside of him. I, I love his description of himself as essentially a middle, a middle manager of a vast gallery of intellects. Of where he's, I mean, there are so many possible theories you can offer as to what's going on with this guy's consciousness, but he has literally compartmentalized various aspects of himself into real physical rooms in his home. And he seems to be able to create these new aspects with unique knowledge, with unique perspectives, with particularly unique skills, almost on a whim as the situation demands. And I also think it's interesting because one of the common terms for a memory technique that pretty much everybody uses to or not everybody but everybody that's within the like trying to remember vast amounts of information is called a memory palace and you design rooms with bits of information and things that cue it and i feel like this takes that to the semi-logical extreme a person with an aspect and a personality in any given room that has access to hilarious amounts of information <laughs> and specializations. I actually, I have not heard that before. Uh, that comes from not having to memorize crap because I do all my stuff on the computer. But uh, yeah, no, that, that's really fascinating. I almost wonder if that was like his kind of, you know, initial thought that sort of built everything. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because he seems to have, like, ideas that then he sees where they go. And so, you know, if we explore some of his other work, that you can definitely see where he had a concept of something and then sort of see how it'll expand and how it'll, you know, flower out into a story or, or a world or something like that. 
Yeah. And actually thinking about it even more, like that really fits with his style. Cause to me, Sanderson is always the person who he builds the world and the rules and then lets a story develop inside of that. He doesn't like come up with a story and then try to fit things to it. It's like the world always comes first, the rules of the world. It's usually it's magic or something, but in this <laughs> case, I was, so that's one of the things like I always struck me how different the story was from his other stuff, but coming at it from that perspective, it makes a lot more sense that he is still world building. It's just a completely different way. So would it be fair to yeah. say, I mean, George R. R. Martin's talked about before, about authors are primarily either architects or gardeners of where they are. They either build the home and then fill it with ideas once the structure has been set, or they just plant the seeds and see where it goes. Which would you, which one would you say that Sanderson more represents based on that description? Ooh, that's oh. tough. Does I, he, I would <laughs> uh, Japanese garden maybe. <laughs> he he puts the yeah. rocks in place and the garden forms around it. Yeah, because you know he's very very focused on certain things and then is very free form on others. So. I think he has incredibly set rules on in in the story that we're talking about in how these personalities interact interact mm-hmm. with Stephen and how they manifest themselves sort of again mm-hmm. in the real world. It, it, it feels like there's a few as you say it feels like there's some very set rules that describe them of where each personality um, is essentially created by something that he experiences or a situation that he needs to needs to fix. Like at one point he's sitting on an airplane and he briefly flips through a, a Hebrew to English dictionary. And as a result of that, he creates an aspect, uh, what was her name, Kalyania or something like that, who is a linguist, yeah. who, has no, who, who has a knowledge about various languages and services translator as he needs. So, and, and so I, think, I think that it's interesting because... He says he's brushing up on it, and she has a better accent than he does, and he knows it. Right. That seems to be one of the one of the key rules is that whatever knowledge they whatever whatever access he provides, they are the ones with the knowledge and skills. He's just the middle manager that puts you in touch with the person you actually need. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and and surprisingly, the Hebrew was pretty good. I was going to ask you about that, whether he was actually doing it correctly. Yes. Uh, I, I think he, he actually acknowledges somebody at the end that I think might have been one of his editors that I'm pretty like I'm like 99.9 percent is Jewish and probably like helped him out with the Hebrew part. Um, what, what, so, yeah. What makes it what makes it interesting, though, is that since. Pretty much, all, with with few exceptions, with the exception of his butler, with the exception of his government contact, Monica, and a few other actual human real characters, pretty much every other character in this novel is essentially a characterization of our main character. They're, as he says, they are aspects of him. So it makes for such an interestingly character-driven novel in that the fact that each of these exists and what they represent says something about our main character, about where he's been, about what he's experienced about what his needs have been at any given time. I think it's very revealing that he says his one of his oldest aspects, perhaps the oldest aspect that's still with him, is his psychiatrist, Ivy. Which I, I find that fascinating, and I also find it interesting. And sort of, I'm, and I'd love to know, like, 
I love to see the notes that go along with this because clearly like there's something about each of the characters or each of the as his aspects that is off or is an issue or something and presumably that ties that that ties into something and sort of knowing like how Sanderson like weaves things like there'd be a reason behind it rather than it just being like you know random so BJ you're uh, you're reading my notes here that's one of the one of the main things I wanted to discuss because the opening line of the novella is I'm sane but my aspects aren't and a key aspect of each of his aspects quote-unquote character is that each of them has some degree of mental illness or some degree of psychological difficulty. And as you said, that seems incredibly important. It's what he opens the novel with. It's one of the driving forces by which he's compartmentalized his own mind. What do you guys think about what he's trying to say there? Why is it that each of his aspects, each of the divisions of his intelligence and character, is flawed and burdened in that kind of manner? You could kind of say it's modeling based on himself because he knows he's... Well, he says he's not crazy, but he knows he has, you know, something wrong slash different with him. And so everything that he generates has to have some sort of flaw. And so it's just following his own internal logic. Hmm. So, so it'd be like a continuation of expressing his own flaws that he can't, that they can't be too separate to fully escape from what he is. Almost like a mirror, yeah. I think that might be, I think I like that interpretation, but I would also offer if they didn't have unique characteristics, what would differentiate them? So, and, and the things that sort of their issues maybe, or, or something like that seem to lend a usefulness and, and also maybe seem to be a little bit of an archetype. So, um, I mean, I guess we can go through them a little bit. Um, so like JC is the weapons and tactical specialist. So, you know, supposedly he's a Navy SEAL and he's kind of brazen and paranoid. (laughs) To say the least. Yeah. Okay. So having somebody that, that, that's, you know, the tactical and, you know, combat analysis being, that wary of everybody and then taking it to the extreme. And so when he's the middle manager, it's sort of boiled down to something normal where he's checking corners, he's paying attention to exits, but he doesn't think that people are following him all the time. It's just the voice in his head that's telling them people are following all the time. And then his manifestation of that is like, you know, he does things most of the time. What's so a coping mechanism then, basically. Yeah, and, and also a way to keep them distinct. It's also an example of just how hyper-specialized they are, that they're so much representing a single aspect of who he is or a single need that their even their disability ties into that and emphasizes that. Yes. I mean, that's an interesting thought. I mean, let's, keep it, let's introduce our cast and keep that thought going. I mean, we've got Stephen Leeds, who we can characterize him over time, but I feel like we, focusing on his various aspects kind of help us with that point. You've introduced yep. J- JC, who we've, who's the first one that we meet, basically firing off at him. JC's unique also in that he's the only one that doesn't believe that he's an aspect, which I guess ties into his paranoia and could be an interesting statement there as well. <laughs> but we yep. also meet, uh, who else we got on the list? 
well, Tobias, Tobias. Who, who seems to be his like history, his historian, his philosopher. His, I think he even calls him at one point his walking Wikipedia, which yep. I think they're borrowing from me there, but I'll allow that to go. I'll allow that to be. Um, Do you the uh, astronauts that tell you the weather? I don't like to speak of them. No, they're mine. You can't share them. Um, but it, 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 as said, he suffers from schizophrenia. Um, I suppose that having a kind of different voices in his own head might give him a certain breadth of perspective or give him different perspectives to offer because he's one of the main ones that helps guide us throughout the novel about providing information or providing clues to help solve mysteries. Yep. Um, and, and I just also found it kind of fascinating that like his, what, what's the name of his astronaut again? It's Stan, I think. Yes. Stan, Stan, the government astronaut that provides weather reports. Yeah. And it's just like, and it's so funny because presumably you can verify them if they're true or not. And it sort of seems like he just has this grasp of weather that is then reported (laughs) through this philosopher as, you know, one of his hallucinations but he just checks the weather if we if we truly see this is that he's compartmentalized his mind it feels like everything then becomes done by committee he's so divorced himself from each bit of knowledge from each bit of the world around him that everything has to come through a separate outside party anyway so so after that we have audrey who uh seems to be some sort of counterfeiting expert that looks at writing um, and other types of verification. Does he, ever, um, does he ever clearly say what her disability is? No. Um, he does say that she, I, I think she's the one that, that is often visiting her sister in Bloomington. Yeah, that was an interesting which, touch. Which, which I thought was kind of funky. Um, was she the one that wanted the puppy? She was the one that wanted the puppy. She was also the one that seemed to be mo- most aware of the fact that she wasn't real and most okay with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it would be a fake puppy and so fake messes. Um, yeah, so, so that, that was sort of like a fun, you know, you know, is it is it self-realization or is it just sort of like a, she's she might be a little bit newer and so he's a little bit more comfortable with him actually having the, this bit of knowledge. It, it, I mean, she in particular raises a lot of fun questions. For one, I love the fact that he sends his butler to go get her, warning him that she may not be present, but just, you know, see if she is. Because um, as said, each one of these people has their own rooms in his massive house. And he feels, I think at one point even says that he can't have more, he can't have more aspects than he has rooms. Right. Yeah, because remember he he ha- he does have to do a little bit of planning ahead for this because he bought the extra airplane seat and it was empty until he had glanced through the uh, translation guide and then his linguist came and sat down, which was a wonderful which was a wonderful and, touch. And, and he was unhappy that he didn't have an extra seat because otherwise he would have brought more people. Right. Yeah, but the fact that his aspects can apparently go off and see family. She was going to see her sister, I think he said in Bloomington, which raises all the more exciting questions. Um, yeah. But the fact his aspects can be away from him, either he leaves them behind, or they simply can go off and do their own thing. Or I think he even talks about at one point that he can lose them if he doesn't maintain a certain degree of control as this middle manager. Raises fascinating questions about if he actually doesn't have them on hand or loses them. He doesn't have those aspects of knowledge. He doesn't have those skills or experience. It 
just leads to, I mean, it leads to limitations for him in the story that he has to choose who he brings with him, but also leads to fundamental concerns that if he actually loses them, does he lose aspects of his own mind? I would say yes. I mean, I think that fairly clearly he had way more of an issue functioning in the real world before this essentially mythical character helps him separate his whatever knowledge or something into these different aspects. And I think that that's sort of an interesting hook that I assume might be resolved possibly because the third installation of this uh, little novella is coming out soon. And I think it's going to be the last one. So that actually might resolve a lot of the questions that we have. Mm. That is interesting, because as we said at the opening, this is very much like the opening pilot of a television show. It's giving you a bit of asp- a bit of knowledge about what the driving plot's probably going to be, but otherwise kind of just goes in media rest to depict a day in the life of a very interesting character. So I, I did not know that this was part of a longer series. I'll be curious to read the other ones. Um, yeah, so I have the second one and the third uh, supposed to be released soon. Oh, you, BJ, you spoil us. <laughs> Um, so the last, uh, aspect that we haven't talked about is Armando. Oh, the, uh, photo tech maybe, but mostly photography expert, um, who believes that he should be installed as the emperor of Mexico. And I believe proposes to Audrey at some point in the, uh, Ivy, Ivy. Okay. And sort of seems a little bit more off his rocker than than everybody else in in the group, but still uh, maintains a little bit of functionality. Yeah, the the book makes very well clear that these are independent characters; that he's not in control of them. That he doesn't. He's, right. he's not. Aw- he's not necessarily aware of where they are at any given point. He loses them at times so that they can go make out in corners, which was hilarious. Um, he, he very. Whatever you want to describe is going on inside his head. He has very much built his consciousness around the idea of that he has very little direction or very little control of what he of. If we view these as parts of him, he has very little control of the various aspects of his own character. He's working with them in a very cooperative arrangement, and if they don't choose to cooperate or don't choose to be where he needs them to be, he's lacking that knowledge in any given moment. Yeah. I think it's sort of like the perfect semi-flawed hero where he's in some ways extremely powerful, but has that aspect of incompleteness that, that makes it a more interesting character. What makes it interesting about where this story starts is that it, this isn't an origin story, that he's already very well known by this point. He's already earned his name Legion through apparently a rather gabby psychiatrist. So... By the time the story begins, he's almost purposely isolating himself because he's gotten tired of how many people are aware of him and how many people, more people like us want to find out about how he ticks and works. I have a quibble here, by the way. What's that? Which is that if somebody were trying to write a thesis on, on somebody, the 
institutional review board <laughs> that you'd have to write out and everything else, the amount of consent that you'd have to go through, you'd never just show up at somebody's house and just be like, all right, well, I'm going to like have some pretend BS to like make them do something. You'd be laughed out of pretty much any university that you tried to get a PhD in or, or even, you know, any other degree or whatever that you're trying to write a thesis on. I mean, maybe like some senior in college, but, but, you know, I feel like even that's pushing it. BJ, so, BJ so, are you suggesting that your, that your experiments that you conduct on mouse brains aren't started by you just having $2,000 in a manila envelope and a story about a missing wife? I mean, it's possible. <laughs> You or know, you could argue that he's so extraordinary, universities are willing to cut corners to make it happen. They're so desperate to get in touch with him. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could try and make that argument. But but I feel like that was one of the few things that just like, all right, well, you know, if so many people have studied him and and so many professors have studied him, like, you know, it, it, it I think it was a great way of introducing how enigmatic he's he's being and how like restrictive of his time and being willing to meet people he is and so that very much sets up that like he's only doing things that are interesting to him and i think maybe now that he has his aspects more under control he's less willing to entertain these people that sort of want to pick apart his brain right it also the scene with the graduate student sets up again just how terrifyingly impressive he is. I mean, as you say, it goes into his background, it goes into introducing who it is, but it also just shows that this is a guy who essentially has how many rooms does he have? Was it forty-seven or something like that? Sounds about right. But he has forty-seven intensely skilled specialties. Like you know, read Malcolm Gladwell. Each of us takes what ten thousand hours to develop a specialty of any of any, of any note. This guy can do that in, he can develop two specialties in the course of a single plane ride across the world. That when this grad student tries to trick him, he just immediately brings in a handwriting counterfeit expert to utterly destroy his art, utterly destroy his uh, fake story in a matter of seconds. This is a person that is of quite literally limitless potential. Yep. Yep. So I have a question then for you guys. What's your opinion on this? Is he this way, is he just like a really, really, really smart guy with some odd mental issue or has he been modified and the, uh, the aspects and everything are just the way that his brain is processing the altered state or whatever's been done to him? It's funny that you should ask that. <laughs> Because one of the things that I hadn't thought of until we were actually going to start this podcast was another book that I recommended to Spencer a while ago, and I think I recommended to you too, where there's something very similar perhaps oh, to this, yeah. this Alien Shore. Yes. I ha- and I have read that, BJ, and I loved it very, very much. I think the answer... The answer that I would give is I don't think he's been like technologically modified, but I think it's more something along the lines of X-Men or whatever else, that there's something unique about him because 
because of how he describes himself and because he says, you know, it's not these different disorders and go, you know, is very, fairly specific about them. Yeah. That it's something more along those lines rather than just like, uh, all right, we put a computer in him and, and now he has, you know, a bunch of other things or, or something like that. The book doesn't really give us much of uh, guidance as to how as to where he came from or how he got to be who he is, other than what I'm guessing is probably going to be the central plot line of where it introduces, um, what's her name, Sandra? Was that was that the name of his past teacher and presumptively lover? Yeah, I think so. It's either, either that or Sarah. I'm blanking right now. We can scroll through and find it. But he, the book introduces the idea that he was once in a much worse state, that he had very limited control over what he was and what he was capable of, and even lost various aspects and presumably their knowledge with them over time until he was met or introduced to or come across a, a woman who was able to give him a degree of control and degree of understanding and command of his abilities, who, upon him learning and gaining this knowledge, promptly left him like every other good hero origin story. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, early in the hero's journey, they meet somebody like... Okay. Yeah. There we go. Wise old wizard. Yeah. This yeah. is this is the Obi Wan who, instead of being dead, you know, just left him left him alone in the world, which he is still very much seeking for. And people are aware enough of this. He's been open enough with this aspect of his character that the government can even induce him to get involved in the plot of this book by showing him that the technology in question could potentially lead him to go find this woman again, where she is and why she left him. But so, so I don't think it was the government. I think it's a major corporation. That, sure. It, it, it leaves it ambiguous, but I agree. It's probably a major corporation from uh, the description. So I feel like we're, we're, we're sort of skirt, skirting around the actual story here and talking <laughs> about the characters and, the, and the stories more uh, the difficult. Sto the story's kind of incidental. I mean, the characters seem to be the driving force of it, but I agree. What, let's, let's talk about the story for a minute about what this one's actually about. So I think a quick synopsis, I would say. So th this after the the graduate student comes and and does this sort of fumbling like introduction to like what's going on and a little bit about Stephen Leeds, you have um, uh, a photograph show up, and basically the photograph is of an iconic tree, but hundreds of years ago and, and basically before the photograph was invented. Mm -hmm. And so this mystery gets this, this woman named Monica in to talk to Stephen Leeds and piques his interest. And basically through a couple more photographs, he's gets introduced to this piece of equipment that is able to take pictures of the past wherever it is. So, so it can take a picture of some past event in the location that, that the camera itself is in. And the problem is that the inventor and his camera have disappeared and they're trying to track this down um, because they've invested a lot of money in it. And, and I love that the book pulls no punches with the fact that it's the premise of a camera that's cap capable of taking pictures of the past does not make logical sense. I love that the book points out that, okay, if it literally just takes a picture of a particular place in time and in space, it will inevitably just be taking a picture of the void because the Earth moves. <laughs> 
The solar yeah. system moves. The galaxy moves. Nothing is in the same place across time. So I love that Sanderson took the time to point out that there is inherently something magical about this because it could not work, or at least that we don't fully understand how it does work. I think that's a great example of him knowing his fan base and letting them know that this is magic, not normal 20th century. Um, but yeah, it, and from there, uh, the plot kind of goes into an interesting place. As you, as you said, our tech, the inventor of this uh, particular bit of technology, the one that got the government funding to make it possible, is very, very much uh, religious, that his faith drives a lot of aspects of his character. And due to this, um, I think it's Tobias, correctly deduces that with this kind of technology, by which he can see and confirm events in the past with utter precision, so long as he knows roughly when they occurred, he can take, he can fly to the holy city of Jerusalem and possibly prove certain religious faiths true or not. And I think that they... It's interesting that he takes a little bit of time to talk about the faith versus science issue here. Um, I thought that was a little bit of a non sequitur and, and a little bit of, uh, for, for lack of a better term, a little circle jerk that, that Brandon Sanderson has. <laughs> do, you think, um, do, you think this is, do you think this is Sanderson talking about himself to a certain degree? I mean, just, just looking him up, um, I see that he went to Brigham Young. I see that he was a Mormon, a Mormon who went on a missionary. Does he, you, think yeah. he, you think he's had any personal battles with his faith, particularly given that he's a fantasy writer, but which fantasy and science fiction have had a bit of a tortured relationship with modern religion. Uh, yeah, I think it might very well be. But I, you know, Josh? So I, yeah, I looked up at his website and it's showing a blog post from back in 2006 where he had, uh, was talking about being a Mormon. Um, so there's at least that. And yeah, he went, he went on mission um, yes, I'm not seeing anything updated past that, so. I mean, I assume he's still within the faith, maybe not as, you know, intense as some, but, you know, he's still in Utah as far as I understand. So, so one of the really cool things if, is if you fly, I think, through Salt Lake City, you can pretty much always find some signed copies of his work in the airport bookstore. Really? He'll just go in and sign copies of his book. <laughs> Mental note: need to fly through Salt Lake City more often. Uh, it's a beautiful airport, but um, but yeah, like at, fairly often I'll see updates on I don't know like Facebook or Twitter or something like that, and it'll be like, oh yeah, you know, three three more signed copies in this airport, and like half of the time it's the Salt Lake City airport. I mean, I, I, would, I would say with how much he, with, with uh, one point Tobias saying of how brave he feels that this inventor is, that he's taking the effort to go try to prove faith or even war with faith and science inside himself, and how much that question, particularly at the end of the novel, becomes a central piece of the novel's theme, it's definitely something he, that the Sanderson wants us to think about. It definitely feels like it's one of the themes of the, of the book. Also, that there was the picture. That's yep. yeah. That's what I'm referencing. It's the final picture. The book leaves very much open the possibility that our inventor, in his tours around Jerusalem, successfully took a picture of Jesus Christ returning to Jerusalem after resurrecting Lazarus. Yep. Um, and and so that 
So there, there are a couple of, of things sort of along the way. You know, there's a terrorist cell that captures the, the inventor that also, you know, uh, ambushes Stephen Leeds and, and this woman, Monica. And basically he eventually gets his way out of it. Um, and, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about his characters uh, at that point. And he eventually figures out uh, that it was never the, the camera, it was the flash mm-hmm. that allowed them to, to see in the past through you know little hints dropped out throughout the, the book. And so he sort of has that in his pocket as something that maybe he can use in the future. And so that's sort of the... It's a very short story, um, and I, and and as you've mentioned a couple of times, pretty much most of the meat of both the world building and the the plot are within the Stephen Leeds himself and how his characters, how his aspects interact and how his aspects develop. And, um, and, and, and go ahead. Well, it's just as a result of the fact that it is very much a snippet in time. I love the characters. I love the setting. I feel like a few things inherently had to suffer just due to the format. Like I didn't get much out of the villains in this. They felt very much like TV show villains in terms of uh, the uh, terrorist group that kind of suddenly appears to create drama. What'd you guys think of them? They felt felt a little stilted, honestly. For me, they came across as more of a plot device than um, necessarily characters in their own right. But I don't think anybody in this is really well... I think purposefully, the only people that are really well characterized in this are his aspects. They are the true characters of the story. And and not even him, which I I appreciate. I, I think that there are other ways that he could have gone, but I think for the length of the story, there was no other way to have essentially have this go on with a villain with the scene that I wanted to bring up. And I think is super important Please. and, uh, reminded me of, uh, a scene in Firefly, Ooh. which is he's at some point he, you know, when he's captured by the terrorists and, you know, there's something going on and there's a little <laughs> bit of a scuffle and he has a gun. I know what you're going for. I didn't see this. It's really clever. I didn't catch that. <laughs> Um, and you know, he, he says a couple of times th- throughout the, the entire story that JC, the, the, uh, Navy SEAL is, is a good shot, but he isn't, you know, he's a poor shot, mediocre at best. Yep. And then, you know, at some point there's a tense situation. JC basically is like, all right, listen to me. You've got to, do, you know, there's stuff that you've got to do, you know, say that you heard me. Yep. I got it. You know, know, say that you heard me. Yes, I hear you. Okay, so this is what you need to do. And he describes it. And then Stephen Leeds presumably shoots like three or four guys. Right through the head. Right, before they they can react. And it sort of very much reminded me of of a scene in uh, Firefly where River Tam, sort of this, you know, discombobulated young girl who we don't really know what's gone on, you know, looks into a room and, you know, picks up a gun and then just immediately shoots all the bad guys in the room, basically without looking. <laughs> and then finishes with no power in the verse can stop me. That, that's a good catch, BJ. I, don't, I, I forgot about the connection between those two scenes. Yep. Well, they, he did say that, I think that uh, JC grabbed his hand and did the actual shooting. 
Okay. But, um, Which, Josh, I think that's a very important thing to point out. That's one thing I, yeah, I, I found so the agency is still on JC. That's one thing I found very interesting about this scene is because this is one of the few times we see him, quote-unquote, doing something. He says it's JC doing it through him, but this is the first time we see his aspects interact and physically, quote-unquote, control him or direct him or allow him to use their abilities to do something. Uh, and even after this scene, when he's talking with Tobias, Tobias looks at him and says, you're doing things on your own now, aren't you? But you're accomplishing things without us. Ivy wasn't in the room when you just saw, when you just, when you just sought through this. And when they're talking about this, it's a, it's a, it's almost a worrisome statement to a degree that he's starting to become capable of things that they are, that he's able to start doing things, be it prompted by them, guided by them, or even independently without them and how that possibly could be a threat to them. And I think that scene with JC is an example of it, of where, whatever you want to say, he unquestionably pulled that trigger. And he even says that, you know, JC may have guided his hand, but he did it. Yep. And honestly, I think this kind of ties into, I personally lean more of that he's just a really smart guy, and I think he had some sort of major trauma, and that's what caused all the separation out. And so that he just is using this kind of as an excuse and it, as an excuse, it, it works out pretty well too, because like you have even less agency of like, if you say someone's like, so think about it, he could say like he was possessed by somebody and they took over his body and started doing the shooting and all that. Mm -hmm. But instead of that, he says he took his hand. So like wrapping JC wrapped his hand around Steven's hand to aim it, moved his hand around. Mm -hmm. So a much lesser form of possession, like, you know, something that anyone could just walk up and do. And so that, you know, takes away from his almost like responsibility, I guess you'd say. And so I think it's just very interesting. So I think that's what it's going to come back to is that there was, for some reason, he's had to separate himself and imagine himself as a middle manager. And my guess is because some sort of major trauma. Yeah, BJ, I think I think that's one of the theories that the book itself presents as possible. I mean, if I remember correctly, doesn't Monica uh, offer that theory to him and even rattle him a little bit on the plane? Yep. And and actually, the more that you talk about it, the the more that it's like, all right, well, it would be very interesting and sort of fit in line with a lot of what's going on if he actually was military and it would make a lot of his government contracting that it vague you know there was a passing reference to a little bit easier to <laughs> drop in you know if he was maybe not a navy seal but you know in one of the services and so he would have a lot of specialty knowledge he'd be an incredibly good shot and you know had some trauma or something where he's a lot more uncomfortable with violence mm -hmm. and so the only aspect of his that doesn't believe it's fake is the one that's basically real right hmm. that's a good one and it very much is tying into modern psychological views of dealing with trauma of dealing with ptsd one of the main symptoms of them is distancing that is you as you said josh it seems like a lot of his decisions a lot of his dividing up of aspects is removing himself from responsibility is that he can always just pass it off that 
whatever he's accomplishing, however he's interacting with the moment, any decision that he's making is truly being done by somebody else. He's just coordinating. It's a, a removing of guilt, which if you guys are right about past trauma, about past military experience, it could very much tie into that he's trying to escape his own decisions. I think um, I think the only, yeah. in terms of possibilities the book offers, it's based, I, if we want to assess briefly what it is, or how it is his mind is working, I think that aspect of either dealing with past trauma or, as Monica suggests, dealing with his own brilliance that his own brilliance so thoroughly separates him and isolates him from the world that he wants to remove aspects of it. And just to explain it, that he's perfectly normal. It's just all these other people that are capable of various abilities. And so he distances and compartmentalizes so that he can better connect with the world. Or the other possibility that they offer pretty early on is that he is mentally ill, very mentally ill, suffering from maybe schizophrenia or some other uh, serious condition. And this is a form of mental illness coping, that he's Sandra or Sarah, whoever else, literally taught him to deal with his own shattered consciousness, his own very much th uh, threaded and frayed mind by tying these otherwise unconnected threads together into individuals so that he can actually access what otherwise is a so thoroughly fractured mind. Of course, there's always just the possibility that it's magic and that he's literally an X-Men, but... <laughs> So, so, uh, you do have the magic camera, so... You do have a magic camera, and there, again, with so, with a ghost-like figure guiding his hand and going full River Tam on various hoodlums, that has an element of magic realism to it, if nothing else. The only thing that comforts me about Sanderson is I don't... And also that there's another book helps, but he's not <laughs> camp enough to say... Oh, he's all, it's all a delusion and he's in like a mental facility. Yeah, there's, there's no deus ex machina in here. I'm, I'm glad to hear a wizard didn't ultimately do all this. That makes, it makes, it makes the story much more interesting. to say, there's no deus ex machina, but, but realize that the character named JC saves the day in a somewhat magical manner. Truly, he really did actually summon God from a machine. You're correct. Well, I, I would say, like, I, I would push back a little bit on that because, like, it wasn't something that just suddenly appeared. It was something that was very well laid out. Like, True. he had the capability throughout the entire story. There was foreshadowing. They went to friggin' Jerusalem to get this picture. It's reasonable they might come across something. Oh. And the book does not... Well, that too. I guess, I guess I was referring to, more specifically, J.C., the weapons tactician. Like, Oh, I thought you meant Jesus yeah, Christ. That's, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, Spencer. I actually but thought... Yeah, you... It's also the literally pulling God from a machine that, that is... That is a cute reference way. that I didn't think about before. That is pretty funny, especially with the initials. I, sorry, I really thought you were being cagey and referencing Jesus Christ when you said that. No. <laughs> no, but but I like that too. No, no, no. JC, literally JC the character. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, me and my homies running with JC over here. Um, <laughs> JC, take my weapon hand. Oh, <laughs> God. Is there a connection that his most one of his most recent aspects is named JC? I mean, I don't. We didn't actually look at this, and I don't have any basis of knowledge to say. Are the names random? I mean, seemingly, as you talked about in terms of in terms of how these characters look and are named and are characterized, they're very distinguished. Which I'm going to ask you guys whether he's distinguishing them as an aspect of. Um, Leads being able to fully differentiate them in his own mind and separate them as separate individuals that they're so distinct so that he can keep them distinct? Or is it purely a uh, 
a construct to help the reader in separating them as different entities so that we can better uh, identify and quickly recognize with who they are. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. But with each of these characters, they are very much different in, in their depiction. They're very much different in their bearing, and they're even different in their names. Is it random, or is uh, uh, Sanderson trying to tell us something with each of these names and how they're depicted? Knowing Sanderson, I would argue it's not random. Um, looking at them again, well, no, because Audrey and Armando are start with A. I was going to say, it's, I feel like all of them started with a different letter, but that's not correct. And then also, if he's got 40-something of them, then it's impossible. Um, yeah. I'm guessing more to keep them separate. I, I think that that at least in this case, there you know there isn't some hidden thing of you know the couple of aspects that we do meet. Um, honestly, I don't remember book two or, or chapter two or ever you want to follow. You know the next in, uh, <laughs> we, series. We may read well it next. Tell you that there's sort of any more. I think it was sort of a, a little bit more. There's a little bit more revelation and a little bit more. Uh, fleshing out of some of the characters, but I, I don't seem to remember any big revelations of that nature. Yeah. My memory of that is very, very small. So I, I think it would actually be pretty cool to go ahead and do that as our next book. And maybe we might even get lucky enough that the third one comes out soon too. So, so I was thinking that either it'd be a great thing to do that one next or wait a little while until the third one's actually out so we can actually finish it out rather than have like part one, part two, and then like, you know, in a couple of months, maybe, you know, part three. I don't remember exactly when the publication date is. Ah, uh, good point. I'm looking it up uh, right now. Let's see if I can see, let's see if they'll be so, so nice as to tell me. Expected to be released at the end of 2018. That is an open period. So, so Brendan Sanderson expectations are usually only baffled by the publisher, not by Sanderson. Yes. Man is a machine when it comes to writing. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's not the craziest machine. There are at least two or three other authors that I would say are above and beyond insanity. Um, and, you know, we can talk about other authors maybe on a separate episode. Um, but but he is he is impressively good about meeting all of his deadlines. Um, so. So, yeah, maybe uh, maybe around when three comes out, we can maybe revisit this a little bit and then finish out two and three. On terms of last last theories or plot lines to discuss, what do you guys think of uh, Monica's theory of where he's basically the most brilliant man on earth, but he's purposely almost trying to hinder himself. He's purposely trying to ground himself so that he can actually interact with the world in a functional way. That if he really is brilliant enough that he can go full phenomenon and read through and learn an entire language just by flipping through a dictionary, has he... You're not going to go with Lucy? I, I prefer not to go with Lucy. That movie was crap. <laughs> um, but it, do, we, do we buy into this idea? I mean, we talked before about that each of his aspects, even though they're brilliant, even though they're, they're the perfect specialist, even they have flaws and crutches in some way. Has he done this as just the most brilliant man in the world as a way of coping with the fact that he is the most brilliant man in the world? I think that there's... 
I think that it's open, and I think whether Sandra is real or not helps answer that. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing we, we won't find that out in bo- until book three, even if we do find it out. And I think she's real because of the photograph, and then, you know, he's tracking her down. True. And it's more, he's brilliant, but there's something else at play rather than he sort of fractured himself to be able to deal with the world mm-hmm. because that would, I would say that if Sandra were not real, it's more likely that he's done this to himself and he's sort of bringing that back a little bit because he sort of realized how shitty being a very boring person, presumably without a lot of money is in, in the world that probably also doesn't interact with it very well. It, it ties into common tropes in terms of de- uh, depicting um, the recluse, brilliant genius. I mean, you go back to like Sherlock Holmes in terms of how he was depicted. They depict him as being very lonely, as being al- almost an aesthetic in terms of his inability to either connect with the world or be, even be interested in the modernity of the world. So it could work into very <laughs> classic literature themes. Well, so I, don't, I, I, I don't know that I agree with you quite on that Sherlock Holmes analysis but but i get where you're coming from there's so many different depictions of the character it's hard to time to one even in the even in the original arthur conan doyle um yeah, books yeah but i feel like he's gotten a very different depiction in uh more recent versions but yeah. but yeah very, very I, I, I think that 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 is a valid point um but but again i think with the magic thread there's a little bit less of the you know, complete reclusive genius. I, I guess, you know, to bring in the X-Men again, I sort of think of him more as a Professor X recluse, <laughs> we, where we, he's kind of reclusive, but not not really. Yeah. In this case, the X-Men are his aspects. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny because there's an X-Men named Legion that sort of has similar a similar thing going for him. And also there's apparently a TV show called Legion that also is very similar to, um, and and it's interesting that you would bring that up. I was reading about this, that, um, the reason that this will never be a television show is because that came out first. He apparently had sold the rights, but Marvel got theirs to the screen first. Yep. Which I was a little disappointed at because I'd rather see his work than, a little bit more Marvel on TV, but you know, be good. Well, I mean, I think you guys, you both may be onto something with going into the government side of things because Leeds seems pretty open with talking to anybody about who he is, about not being afraid to hide his aspects. But when asked about his prior work and where he got his fortune, he's decidedly cagey about what work he's done with the government. Yeah. Which could, could just be confidentiality, but it seems like he was more willing to talk about pretty much anything except that line of what he's done previously. And Sandra. And her too, yeah. Well, guys, do we have anything else we want to talk about with this particular one? I think uh, favorite character. Ooh. Um, I think that might be a, a fun recurring theme, and then, you know, maybe a, a particular scene that you liked. Okay. Well, BJ, do you, have, do you have any recommendations to start us off? Um, I'll go with a particular scene. Um, I think my favorite scene was uh, 
when two of his aspects sort of came back with their heads. <laughs> uh, but, and, and now I also think that it's a, a sort of turning point in the story because, and, and he mentions it, like, you know, he didn't realize that his aspects could interact sort of without him present. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of wonder if that, that plays into a little bit of the, maybe his fractured personality starting to melt together a little bit or something like that. But I thought it was sort of a very funny way to do it. And lending a little bit of humor to a little bit of lightness to, to an otherwise fairly serious book. Uh, favorite character on top of that? Ooh. Um, in some ways, my favorite character is not a character at all. And it's Stan because it's, he's just hilarious. (laughs) Like I, I like Tobias, but I like, the concept of of Stan and obviously he's not even really a character, but I just find it so funny um, that that I think he might get my my stamp of favorite character. It doesn't appear that he's ever actually wrong about the weather, despite the fact that he's not apparently one of uh, Leeds's aspects. Right. Yep. How about you, Josh? A favorite scene or a favorite character? Um, scene, I mean, I, it's not exactly a cop-out, but for me, like, just the most striking was the very end when they get the final picture showing a man on a donkey looking directly at the camera that wasn't there. Yeah. Like, the first, the first time I read that, and because he'd been very cagey about, like, how it was going to end and where he was taking things. And he had established it pretty well that, yeah, the camera actually works. And so in the back of my mind, this is also because I had zero background information about Brandon Sanderson. And if I had known he was a Mormon, I might have expected it. But um, yeah, just completely unexpected that he got the picture and the guy was like looking right at the camera. It's just, oh, it's just like, man, what if that actually happened? And then all of a sudden you saw that and it's like, oh, chills. So, so I have to shout out to a series of video games that holds a special place in my heart, even though they are not good video games. <laughs> and that's the Assassin's Creed series. <laughs> oh, controversial take. That's a beloved series there, BJ. Yeah, sort of. No, I, 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 it, it, it is dear to my heart, and I thoroughly enjoy playing it. But it is, it's not a good game. You liked Assassin's Creed too. You, you, you got me to play that when you liked it so much. Spencer, I, just because I like something a lot and make you do things that you shouldn't do doesn't mean that that it's good. <laughs> the pro- he the, makes you do things he doesn't like. The, the prior thirteen years of our relationship have such a different spin now because of that conversation. <laughs> But but there's there's a couple of scenes in there where essentially you get talked to as the player and through the character that you're playing. Hmm. And it's sort of and some of it is you get to, you know there's there's layers upon layers and so so exactly where that goes. But but it's a very you know this in many ways was sort of like almost breaking the fourth wall. And I also, and I also really like that scene where, you know, it's, it's sort of very obviously like, 
almost even breaking through the the story itself and it's like a little bit more maybe christianity than than some of his other books but very much a you know he's looking out through time and you know this is jesus and he has more of a concept of what reality is than we expect that that kind of ties into one last uh, question or theme the book presents we didn't really go into but the key evil plot here on the part of the uh, terrorists is that they are going to disprove Christianity by, I guess, taking thousands upon thousands of pictures of every single part of Jerusalem circa about a 50-year period of time, which Tobias and several other people point out probably wouldn't really even work even if they didn't find anything, because it being faith, why people wouldn't necessarily believe them, even if there was no proof, because it wouldn't change anything from what they currently have. Fake news! Fake news! (laughs) Politics, Josh. Leave that for another podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We'll have a ranting ranting about politics. Um, That'll that'll be popular. But what what do you guys think about that in terms of what he's representing? Can you use empirical evidence? Does empirical evidence have any relevance for faith at all, other than possibly reaffirming your faith? Yes and no, I would say. Um, I feel like there's breaking points for every person's faith, regardless of what it's faith in, um, of seeing empirical evidence. So some people, you know, you show them a little bit of empirical evidence, that's enough. Some of them, you have to show them an overwhelming amount. And some people you have to show them basically an impossible amount, but I'd say for it's, there's, there's just different levels. I I think it depends also what your faith is in. And I, I think that, you know, it's sort of an interesting, I think he, he, he brought in Catholicism specifically for that because, you know, they, he needed a faith that was a little bit more, rigid right and also focused on the iconography catholicism's always been built around having various in, in bits of empirical evidence to support things from the, sh- the shroud of Torah to the other various relics and supporting aspects of faith exactly and so so yeah i, th- I think that you know i think that's a interesting point um i, I would but... like it I would like it if the Vatican created their own reliquary for just that picture sitting there, that this is the new <laughs> holy artifact of the generation. Yeah. Um, but before we continue on too much, Spencer, I know how you like deflecting all attention away from you. Hey, 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 Josh didn't give us a favorite character yet. We need to finish with him first. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so my favorite character, um, I didn't feel too terribly strongly um, on any of them. I think I just kind of liked... Ivy, just because she, it, it was kind of like she's in this awkward position of psychiatrists trying to help people, but if she helps and cures him, then she disappears. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting to me. I didn't, like I said, I didn't feel a strong affinity with any of them um, or a strong, you know, this is my absolute favorite. So, okay. yeah. I, I think with a, a story this short, yeah. Even with the, the amount of fleshing out that each of the aspects get, it's it's still a little hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, BJ, I suppose you're not going to let me get away without answering the question, too. Well, Spencer, who's your uh, favorite character? What's your favorite scene? <sighs> you know my, you know how much I hate favorites. Um, 
Okay, favorite scene. Do top three bullshit. I'm not gonna do top. There's only like eight characters. I can't do a top three with eight <laughs> characters. Uh, okay, favorite scene. I would say it's a long scene, but I would say the plane ride, just because of how much it really reveals about his about how his mind or how the aspects work. Of where opening with the mystery of the empty seat, which they then slowly reveal about how we how how these aspects are created and how they function. Revealing that each of his aspects has their own form of mental illness, and revealing that Stan, who we've already had several references to over the bit, is an imagination of an imagination. That having the first concrete theory, and probably the only concrete theory the book presents about how he may work, and having Tobias, his most logical aspect, go, eh, that's probably a pretty good theory, we should probably talk about that more after we're done with this. It was nice in terms of world building and stat well, world building in the sense of expanding our knowledge of Stephen Leeds and how he works. So that whole aspect of it and opening up the possibility that he really just is that maybe brilliant um, was really interesting. I think it was some of the most um, complete a complete insight we've had in, or potential insight into how he works. Um, what do y'all think of that scene? It's a good scene. I liked it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, and and. Honestly, I like I always appreciate when writers do their homework and so that he had entertaining butchering of Hebrew and also, you know, a fairly good, you know, then recapitulation was was definitely appreciated. In terms of uh, for me, favorite character, Josh, I'm after great with you. I really did like Ivy. Um, It was nice having a character that actually has that much degree of history with him of where she's one of his first characters. I like that possibly the first aspect he ever created was a psychiatrist because it reveals a lot about what state of mind he was probably in, in his early goings or well, that, that raises an interesting question though. If it was a psychiatrist that he very much first created, he must've realized that he needed a psychiatrist, but if she's his first aspect, what was the condition that led him feel that he needed a psychiatrist leading down the rabbit hole with that logical thought process. But she in many ways serves a kind of similar role to him of where since she's the psychiatrist, since she's the character analyst, she in many ways kind of works to help him coordinate and arrange for the more various newer and more diverse and in some ways more, um, less controllable aspects. So I enjoyed her role. I enjoyed their support. I enjoyed their history. And like you said, Josh, I enjoyed the fact that she's in some ways helping him make them maybe in the future unnecessary. She's in some ways helping him by ensuring maybe their eventual doom. Yep. Self-sacrifice. Cool. BJ, this is your ship. What else should we cover today? I think that's uh, pretty much it for this story. And the, the only other thing is um, basically where we go from here. Um, so I think I like breaking this down into characters and world building and plot development. This was very heavy on the characters. Hmm. I'm sure we'll have other ones that are heavy, a lot heavier on the plot or um, the world building. Um, and I think Brandon Sanderson is amusingly, we got a character heavy one. <laughs> where pretty much every other single one of his things is a world building thing. Um, and, I think, Spencer, you'll like this. This wasn't part of his Cosmere, which is his four, I believe, or five different series of connected um, book series that are all within the same universe Yep. and have some recurring themes and characters. 
Um, huh. He he actually has a mythos to himself. Yep. Wow. Um, and eventually, he's supposed to have uh, a series following a character that can hop between all the different worlds. Oh God! Keeping track of that's gonna be a nightmare. It's what? Keeping track of that's gonna be a nightmare. I'm sure. He's already supposedly have that character shown up in pretty much every major story that he's written. Huh. Yep. Um. Uh, so I, I think the the last thing, and and we can either we can discuss this offline, but I think in the future it'd be nice to do a little bit more online. Is recommendations for next time, and maybe you know what we're going to read for next time. But I think that's going to be a little bit hard to do, um, in in our uh, inaugural episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll work out the kinks. But I agree. I think I, I think we should maybe even just switch off, or we move between the three of us as to each person recommends one going through going down the list that everybody else can then read thereafter. So you can come in knowing that it's your turn to recommend a book. Yep. Um, I think that works very well. Um, I think on the other hand, um, having fairly long novels might make it rough to have this be, you know, whatever semblance of regularity, depending on how long, you know, the novels might be. And I think, I, I think going in this depth or even more to, to certain novels that we all really like might be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, We'd probably want to keep the novels under a thousand pages if you want me to be done with them in less than a month, but other than that, I'm flexible. Um, and then, you know, the last couple of things, um, I have a bunch of short stories, and I think there are a bunch of short stories online that we can also sort of tide us over to have a regular thing where we have a novel that we're all reading and have, you know, coming up. Okay. And so, you know, maybe do some, you know, mesh work of you know some short stories that are a little bit easier to get into and quickly discuss and then have you know some novels that we you know we get into a little bit more detail and you know maybe someday we'll we'll decide that some novel is worth our attention we can do a chapter by chapter or something i'm, I'm down with that and bj do you have a recommendation maybe of a short story for next time because if not I, I i think i actually have one that could be fun to discuss based on the, some of the themes we talked about in this one Sure. Um, why, don't, why don't you uh, suggest that? We'll do that next and we'll keep it going. Well, I mean, BJ, we've talked about this before and it's always been a personal favorite of mine, but it's kind of a pairing by the same author of where I'm a big fan of Isaac Asimov. And um, the pairing of the last answer and the last question has always been a fun one to discuss. Would you guys be interested in giving those a try? I was actually thinking of that story too. That uh, and uh, The Egg. Ooh, yes, the eggs a, a nice, a really good one. Should we do? Uh, and they're all they're all short. Should we do all three? Yeah, I actually think that that'd be cool because they they're very similarly themed. Very much so. They kind they, uh, they kind of take different perspectives on the same issue. Yeah, so I, I think that that's good. So so maybe three short stories for uh, for the next time, and then. Um, yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, we can po we can each ponder a longer book to uh, decide among ourselves once we do the next podcast. But, so, for our listeners, uh, for next time, we are going to be reading three Isaac Asimov short stories. The Last Answer... Two. two? The Egg is not Isaac Asimov, I don't think. I was losing track. Who, who did The Egg? Some dude online. I don't think... I yeah, don't I don't even think it's... It might... I don't know if it's anonymous... 
Okay. Um, Andy Weir. Oh, well, I was going to lose money on that. I, I swear to sworn it was Asimov. Maybe I just liked it that much. Oh, wow. This is, this is a lot shorter than I remember. My goodness. It's like, it's probably under a thousand words. Okay. Quick. Yeah. Th- all three are, are, are very short, So, but I think we can get a lot of uh, mileage out of them. Okay. Well, so for next time, the online anonymous short story, The Egg, uh, and two short stories by Asimov. Last answer and the last question. If you guys would like to participate, we encourage you to read them, encourage you to post uh, your various comments or suggestions or themes or just even topics for discussion online in the comments for this video. Or if there's anything else you want us to talk about based on what we enjoyed and debated and may, may come back to again in Legion, please do so. But this so ends the inaugural episode of the first Mangum Reads uh, podcast, and we hope you all enjoyed it. Guys, been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for joining us.